Casey Communications Incorporated is sponsor of Voices of Experience. The fact that he walked off that, that field for the last time to booze is really disheartening and it, and it ruins a little bit of the relationship between fan and player. Because we all like to talk about ourselves. And, and I think that it's so important to listen. Listen to, to your team. Listen to your kids. You wrote hundreds of columns. Is there any column that generated the most reaction from the people you were trying to reach? The sermon on uh, Christian faith and homosexuality, in which I preached in favor of accepting homosexuals, gay, and lesbian people. I believe that uh, people are people, and that we ought not to judge them on the basis of their sexual orientation. That's Jeradiah Collins, followed by Brad Taylor, and then the late Reverend Dale Turner. Now, who was Jeradiah referring to when he said, quote, that he walked off the field to the booze, end of quote? That person is Andrew Luck, quarterback, or actually more to the point, former quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts. I asked Jeradiah his take on Andrew Luck's controversial decision. Now, Jeradiah and Andrew Luck have two things in common. One, they both played pro football, and two, they both walked away from the game in their prime. Also joining us, Brad Taylor. And he's the author of a book called Intentional Success, The Power of Entrepreneurism. If you've been listening to this show for any length of time, you'll know how near and dear going into business for yourself is to me and Brad is a person who has a lot of experience in this field, so I'm really anxious to talk to him today. He was followed by the late Reverend Dale Turner, who was a major influence in the Seattle area. I'm not very religious, but I read the Reverend Dale Turner's column in the Seattle Times religiously. He wrote from the heart and the brain and possessed a great deal of common sense. He also was a profile in courage, stepping up very early on for the cause of equal rights for gays, his most controversial stand of his career. He talks about this during this interview. Now, my name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience, where we just simply talk to people with experience in their fields. If you'd like to talk to me personally, my phone number is 206-459-5536, 206 459 Five five three six. Back with my interview with Jeradiah Collins in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word.
Andrew Luck, quarterback with the Indianapolis Colts, jolted the pro football world and a lot of football fans with a surprise announcement that he was retiring from pro football. Some fans reacted with outrage. A lot of the fans at the game in which it was unveiled that he was retiring booed him while he was on the field, while others reacted with some degree of understanding because uh, the health of pro football players has become very widely questioned over the last couple of years. Now, Jerediah Collins, he played pro football as well, and he was a fullback with the New Orleans Saints and a number of other teams along the way. He was also a fullback for the Washington State University Cougars. Now, the reason I talked to Jerediah about this is that he walked away from the game as well. Not so dramatically, per se, but he did walk away from the game because he thought other priorities were more important. Now, Jerediah now lives in Seattle with his family, and he's an executive with the Brighton Jones Wealth Management Firm. So I thought I would ask Jerediah what he thought about the reaction to some of the fans and the TV and radio pundits about the retirement of Andrew Luck. You know, the, the feedback has been disappointing. As athletes, you try to identify yourself as more than the game. And as fans, you always kind of put us under this guidance that your appreciation is, is both us as, as a player, but then also as a person. Uh, the fact that he walked off that, that field for the last time to booze is really disheartening, and it, and it ruins a little bit of the relationship between fan and player. But I, like you said, I had a similar situation in where I made the decision to walk away, obviously financially and just status as significantly different spectrum than Andrew Luck. But the same three keys came across my mind. The first being that the pain is real. You you wake up throughout the season, you're in a constant state of having survived a car crash. And it's a 48-hour process to rebuild, regain, and get ready to do it again. Um, and as that toll stacks up, as you begin to have serious injuries, as you begin to have unhealable parts to your body, you start to have a different account to what 100% really means. After your first major surgery, you're never really back to 100%. After the first day of training camp, you don't really even get back to close to 100% until February or March. So number one is the pain. Number two is respect for greatness. You arrive in the NFL. You have a mindset and a clarity around what your purpose is. Our purpose is to go be the best in the world. If at some point you start to look in the mirror and you realize you don't have that grind, you don't have that grit, or really just that wherewithal to go do it, you respect the game. You respect what that high caliberness takes too much to fake it. And Andrew Luck has been a top-tier player from college throughout his NFL career when he was healthy. He has tasted greatness. And I think there's a part of him that realizes what it would take to get back to that level. And if he just didn't feel like he had it, he respected the game enough to walk away. The third piece to the puzzle is this relationship of risk to reward. We're asked at a very young age, why do you want to play the game? And the rewards are endless. You list them off right and left and you know exactly what brings you out there. At some point in your career, that risk-reward relationship begins to balance out and even tilt in the other direction. And for a guy like Andrew Luck, who's financially survived, he is, uh, from a, a schooling perspective, he got his free education, and he has taken a lot of the fruit that this, this 
football game has, has been able to bear, you look at that and say, well, what were the best rewards left on the table for him compared to the risk? And that risk-reward measurement is a really neat one that he was able to identify and ultimately say, I think I can go and be the Andrew Luck I want to be without this game, without the game of football. For that, I applaud him. You see the money he gave up financially. You see the career he's giving up, retiring in his prime. Nobody in their right mind thinks Andrew Luck wanted to retire. But it was a series of discussions with himself internally, with his family, I'm sure, that ultimately got him to a place that said, I think the game, I've taken enough. I would have to think that as you were talking and about this, and very well put, I mean, there's a lot of things that I learned from what you just said. And that is, who cares about these morons who sit in the stands, basically, and judge other <laughs> people, and they've probably not even taken a snap beyond flag football in their entire life. As a professional athlete, you can count uh, uh, an endless list of people who come up to you at a cocktail party and tell you about their playing days. Um, and I, I enjoy it because it is an appreciation of, of what we do, but there's also a lack of understanding around what it takes to get to that next level, what it takes to become a first-round draft pick, what it takes to become a Pro Bowl player, what it takes to be a Division One athlete is not just talent. It takes sacrifice. It takes discipline. It takes focus. It takes the planning of understanding, hey, I'm not going to go and do the things that my friends are doing because it may ultimately deter me from my plan. The truth is the best talent is always at home. The best talent has either been demised by injury or, for the most part, by bad decisions. And so you see what it takes to get to 30, year, 30 years old and be at the top of a, uh, of a very competitive sport and environment. Very few people get to appreciate what that, that climb takes. Sure. And, and being the third-string quarterback at Orton Hall in Pullman, I have a difficult time describing what that is, right? I, well, you, you dealt with adversity. I mean, there's a, a good principle you get to take away. <laughs> That's right. The, somebody pulled out the flag, and it kind of hurt my uh, shorts a little bit. But uh, anyhow, no, th- thank you for uh, saying that. And shifting to another subject, the Pac-12 is opening up uh, this weekend, as is all of college football. Just want to get your take on what you think the Pac-12 is going to be like this year as a conference. Uh, it's been down some. A lot of people have been critical about the Pac-12 and the level of competition and the TV revenue and all that. What are your thoughts now going forward? I think the Pac-12 has a big, big problem in regards to its revenue stand, uh, the, the TV contracts, how it's formalizing as a conference is hitting some struggles and some turmoils. We've seen that. Um, going on to the field, the Pac-12's biggest problem is it doesn't have the top 10 or, or five-star blue chip team yet. Uh, for a while, it was USC, and USC was respected all across the land of being one of those top-tier caliber teams. The Pac-12 has continually had good teams that have gotten beat within the conference, and that removes them from the national spotlight, national stage. We right now have five, six teams that are arguably going to be in that 10 to 25 category of the, of the top teams in the country, but we need one to go the route and go unblemished and get into that top four category. Why the Pac-12 is consistently said is you aren't good enough is because you don't have one of those teams at the end that gets to play in the college football playoffs. 
we have some very, very good teams. We need an elite team to remove themselves from the pack and say, we're not only really good on the West Coast, we're not only really good in college football, but we're elite and can play with anyone. And it's right now, if I were to take a, a, a gambler's guess, I would put my eyes on Utah. Utah is going to have arguably one of the best defenses in the land. And if you look at the next two best defenses, Alabama and Clemson, they sit in pretty good company. So I, I know Washington State has them on the road this year. That's going to be a very challenging game. But from a conference perspective, last week the Pac-12 season opened up with Arizona losing to Hawaii. And when games like that, with blemishes like that, the conference takes a hit. So as a group, I don't say we all agree that one team's going to go undefeated, but somebody has to rise to the challenge and, and stay focused, stay locked in long enough to have that zero in the loss column, walk into the college football playoffs, and then get to put our money where our mouth is and say, we're one of the best conferences in college football. Yeah, I would agree that uh, when you look at, well, I didn't, I didn't know about the Hawaii defeating Arizona. That's an ouch. Yeah. But, you know, as a fan, you know, I was at the days back in the 70s and 80s when, you know, Washington State, for example, if we won two pack eight games or 10 games, we were thrilled, you know, for uh, much of the mm-hmm. season. But the fact that, you know, it is a conference where everybody can compete. And as you just said, I think you said five teams could be in the top 25. I think that's a really good thing, though, for the game. I mean, I like the fact that I can go to Pullman or on the road and see the team and they got a shot at every game now. We couldn't say that 20 years ago. No, not at all. The, the level of competition has definitely risen, uh, but the level of expectation has risen along with that. What a successful season is. You look even close to home in Pullman, no longer are we saying, hey, let's just get some wins and go to a bowl game. That's no longer acceptable as success for the year. We're saying we want a Pac-12 title. We want to go to a Rose Bowl. We want to compete on that higher, higher stage. Because the game has become such a business, mediocrity is no longer acceptable, much like it is is in in the corporate setting. Nobody is okay with just being okay. Everybody wants more and wants the next. Uh, It's been really neat to see the game take these steps and these levels. But once again, you need, whether it's a company or a, a conference or a team, You need somebody to separate themselves and say, this is the new gold bar. This is the standard. We all measure ourselves again. It's been Alabama for the recent history. Clemson is starting to argue to take that title. Um, And as you do have a program like that that just separates itself amongst really good opponents, that is when the respect is given. That is when the respect is earned and demanded. Um, And so it it will be neat to see the Pac-12 continue to unfold especially as USC is kind of that sixth team on the outside of the top 25 conversation. Um, It will be really neat to see how we take a national stance. Everybody wants to hype up Oregon. Uh, I will be interested to see if they're able to uh, actually rise to those expectations. My thanks to Jerediah Collins, now executive with Brighton Jones Wealth Management Firm, based in Seattle. Brad Taylor has joined me, and he's the author of a book called Intentional Success, The Power of Entrepreneurism. I first wanted to ask Brad, why and how did he become an entrepreneur? (laughs) That's a great question, Paul, because uh, I think I've been an entrepreneur all my life. From the time I was, you know, I don't know, 
12 or 13 years old, having paper routes and then starting a landscaping business, etc. I mean, I think that it was in my DNA. So you really thought that you wanted to be this your whole life. That's interesting because I had a paper route as well. You became an entrepreneur, but I never made that connection. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I used to go to the library and read about, you know, entrepreneurs and, and just people, inventors, and all my siblings thought I was crazy. But in the 45-plus years that I've been working, you know, other than five years of working for someone who is my first true mentor, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. And I think it was hard when, uh, when my wife and I got married in the, uh, in the, uh, in the late eighties, early nineties, we, uh, you know, she was a registered nurse. And so it was a whole different mindset because she was an employee. She had that employee mentality and here she's marrying an entrepreneur. And we kind of talk about that in my book, intentional success of, of marrying an entrepreneur. Yeah, I had a very similar circumstance, but, you know, it's interesting your, I guess, path to it was different than mine, and you say this is something you wanted to do pretty early on in your life, and um, this is something that I backdoored my way into. I mean, I worked for the government, I worked for private enterprise, and then I worked for the government again, I started a nonprofit, etc., and I was kind of out of options. It never really occurred to me to be an entrepreneur but what the next choice was, was living on a park bench. So I thought I would give this a shot. Now I had those, I guess, desires to be that I really wanted to run my own organization. But again, it was very late for me in terms of wanting to do this. Do you find that with other people, both sides of the uh, equation when you talk to them? Well, not everyone has the guts or is willing to risk, uh, basically risk it all to, to, become an entrepreneur. And I think I respect both sides of the equation um, because you, you really have to be willing to just take that leap of faith and believe enough in yourself and have that confidence to make that decision. And if you do make that decision to become an entrepreneur, you cannot have an option B because the people that have an option B typically will fail because they have that safety net to go back to when adversities and challenges and struggles, uh, you know, face you. And uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it takes a real special person. But I will tell you this. I read something recently that 40% of the Americans – by the year, I think it's 2021 or something, will be entrepreneurs in some way, shape, or form. Um, either they'll have a second business where they're still working the traditional business, but that entrepreneurship, I think, is growing leaps and bounds. And I couldn't agree with you more about that plan B, not to have that. You have to throw that out the door because there are certain times you're going to hit and you're going, why am I doing this? And if you have that safety net, as you said, you probably will take it. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it was really hard for my wife when, she, when we got married because here she's marrying somebody that has been an entrepreneur basically all 
his life, and she 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 liked that that comfort zone. But I will tell you this: it wasn't even six years after we were married that we talked and we said, "Look, if we're really going to accomplish our goals together, you know, we need to work together." And she was a pediatric nurse, so basically, she gave up her license that she worked so hard to get, and we never looked back. Interesting. Similar circumstance with my wife, but a little different angle. She was working for corporate America. And one of the reasons that she was attracted to me was because I was an entrepreneur. And she felt that that sort of trajectory led me to be a, a different type of person, which she was attracted to. I think that entrepreneurs bring a whole different mindset, not just you know, I think to the whole family atmosphere, because I think your kids, as they watch you, have a different appreciation for what you do. And all of our, all of our kids over the years have watched, you know, us work really hard and have some struggles and have some successes, obviously. And uh, I think they have a better appreciation for um, what we do um, because, you know, nothing's handed to you. And that's how we've tried to raise our kids over the years. You have a outline that is uh, says about 12 intangibles to success, and there's 12 of them. We can't get all through those. And so as I read your 12 intangibles of success, one of those is relatability. Could you expand on that? Yeah, I think that today we all no matter whether we're in the professional arena or we're just a husband or a, a dad or mom, we have to listen more. And we can't be so quick to come to an opinion or, or I, I, you know, my wife always points out to me that, you know, we're in an atmosphere where, where I'm meeting someone or we're talking to, to friends or, or, or business associates and, and someone is telling me a story and I really, really relate to that story. So I start to inject my two cents into the story because I can really relate to what they're saying. And my wife would always say, Brad, it's not about you and your stories. It's about them and the stories they're sharing. And I, and I, I just, I love to use that analogy because we all like to talk about ourselves. And, and I think that it's so important to listen, listen to, to your team, listen to your kids, listen to your wife, your spouse, your significant other. And, and because at the end of the day, we can get so much more accomplished and we can really understand truly what someone's saying by listening and just, just responding with with small little tidbits of, of questions or comments. And I think, you know, it's human nature just to talk. And sometimes we lose sight of listening. And I think that's really what you, relatability is. It's, it's having that communication skill, which is really hard. It was hard for me, just in the simple example I, I shared with you. Very interesting. There's an article in the New York Times this morning 
called Listening. You should read it because it says exactly what you just said. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate your time again. That's Brad Taylor, and he's the author of a book called Intentional Success, The Power of Entrepreneurism. You know, sometimes I think it's easier to run your own business than to say entrepreneurism. The retired Reverend Dale Turner, pastor for over 50 years, of which he spent 24 of those years at the University Congregational Church, is our guest this morning on U.S. West Profiles of Experience. Uh, Reverend Turner, what attracted you to your profession? Well, I uh, planned at the outset of my life, early years, to become an athletic coach, and I studied all through uh, college to that end, getting a major in physical education, but uh, I somehow felt called to the ministry reluctantly, though, because I was uh, shy. I hated to uh, express my opinions publicly. What brought you out to Seattle originally? Well, our church is, uh, each, deny, each uh, local church is autonomous. The pastor where I served retired. I, I came out here and uh, was interviewed and, and uh, was called, and so I've enjoyed every bit of it. Great church and a great 24 years. You wrote hundreds of columns. Is there any column that generated the most reaction from the people you were trying to reach? The sermon on uh, Christian faith and homosexuality, in which I preached in favor of accepting homosexuals, gay and lesbian people. I believe that uh, people are people, and that we ought not to judge them on the basis of their sexual orientation. I guess that sermon stands out because it evoked enough response from people, both pro and con. Do you think society is getting better? It's hard. There'd be a fallacy of sampling to uh, say either way. I, I think in our world there are an awful lot of good people that are making the world better, brighter, more loving. But uh, obviously one needs only to read the papers to uh, know there are a lot of rascals still loose in the world. If you could change anything, though, with the snap of a finger, what would that be? Well, I would uh, change racism. I, I think it's deeply embedded in in the human nature to... Uh, well, uh, we, we hear preaching that all people are created equal, but uh, we see more black people in prisons and, uh, and less uh, lesser opportunities of national leadership. And uh, I say the thing that I would work on most is... Uh, Helping people see that people are people, regardless of the color of their skin, their nationality, or anything else, whether they're male or female, that people are people and ought to be treated as people. And that's the thing I, I hope to keep working on. The retired Reverend Dale Turner of the University Congregational Church. Reverend Turner, thank you so much for spending time on Profiles of Experience. Nice to visit with you, Paul. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. I would like to thank Jedediah Collins, Brad Taylor, and the late Reverend Dale Turner for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. The Washington State Cougars and the University of Washington Huskies opened up the season with very impressive wins over the weekend. Combined, they outscored their opponents 105-21. to The Cougars host Northern Colorado, and the University of Washington hosts the California Golden Bears this coming weekend. And the Seahawks open up against Cincinnati in Seattle this coming Sunday. Fall is right around the corner, and football is in full swing. Have a great rest of the week.